Thanks for the opportunity to be able to share with you today. Would you take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Second Corinthians 5, I'll start reading at verse 18. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you, on behalf of Christ, Be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'd like to tell you about the time when I realized that I was in love with my wife. Uh, This happened before we were married, of course. Uh, In fact, I remember the day. I know, that takes a while. It was a Sunday morning, October 1st. 1973. This was back in olden days. And we were both students at what is now Corbin University, long before that name was ever invented. And Bonnie was starting her junior year, and I was beginning. I've been on campus for about three weeks, and that's about how long we had known each other. And on this Sunday morning, we were both in a little church out in Independence, Oregon, just about 15, 20 miles west of Salem. And how we both came to be at this church, I can't really tell you. It's a church that I had started going to. That's why I was there. But Bonnie didn't usually go to this church. She went to another church in town. And so I'm not really sure why she was there. I don't think I would have invited her. That sort of thing was beyond my capability at that time in my life. Uh, I was kind of a quiet and shy kid. And when you're a quiet and shy kid, you don't just invite pretty girls to church anytime you feel like it. So... I'm not sure how she got the idea to come, but I remember that it was in between Sunday school and church. I was standing near the front of the auditorium, and I looked back just in time to see her walking in through the main door. And I was very happy to see her. But I didn't know what I should do about it. Uh, So I sat down. Man up! (laughs) That's right. I thought that would impress her. I did save her a seat next to me in case she might like to sit with me. And that was how I communicated my interest in her back in those days. I would save her seats in various places, chapel, the dining hall, the library. And the idea was she would be wandering around looking for a place to sit, and she would see me sitting someplace with an empty seat beside me. And uh, sometimes she would sit in them. It worked a little less than half the time. So she sat down beside me, and we started talking to each other until the church service started. Then, of course, we stopped talking. And this was back in the day when churches were required to have what we called special music for every single service, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and sometimes Wednesday night, too. And uh, this put a lot of pressure, especially on a smaller church, to come up with that much music. Sometimes you'd end up with someone up there singing who really couldn't sing at all, or... You know, maybe some old guy might get up and play a harmonica or maybe even whistle a song. I saw it all happen. (laughs) When I was in high school, I visited a church 
uh, once that had an old guy get up and he whistled, uh, when ca- heaven came down and glory filled my soul. <laughs> Which, Colville. I think was a little too ambitious of a song to try to whistle. He, <laughs> I don't know. He sort of looked like he might be on his way to heaven right then and there. A few times. But that was the advantage of going to a smaller church, as the special music could be so entertaining from time to time. But when you had somebody who really could sing in a small church, that was really something. And Bonnie really could sing, and she was, she still can. And she was asked to sing for special music that morning. And when the time came, she got up and she began to sing. And I just sat there amazed. Uh, I knew she could sing, but I had never heard her sing before. I had never heard anyone sing quite like this. It was beautiful. She was beautiful. And I could still see her standing up there singing wearing a white and lavender-colored long dress, long, dark, curly hair, singing, Love Was When God Became a Man, a song you've never heard of, but it was very popular (laughs) back in the early 70s. So as I sat there listening to her, I started thinking, I think I love her. I started thinking about what it might be like to be married to her, and what it might t- take to convince her that this was a good idea. <laughs> I was thinking about all these things, and I wasn't really sure what I should do about it. I was not experienced in this kind of thing. Uh, the last time I tried anything like this was when I was 12 years old. I wrote a note to a girl that I liked and slipped it in her hand when no one was looking. It said, Dear Ellie, I like you. Do you like me? Checkbox for yes, checkbox for no. <laughs> That didn't seem like such a great idea this time. (laughs) So what should I do? I did get the note back a week later with the yes box checked, so it did work then, but not this time. I ended up not saying anything to her at that time for a couple of reasons. One, I just had my 18th birthday a week before that, and that seemed a little reckless to me even to be talking about marriage at such a young age. And besides that, I had not yet worked up the courage to ask her on a date and I was pretty sure asking her to marry me would be even harder than that. So I waited quite a while. Well, as you can probably tell, I had a lot of growing up to do in understanding what it means to love someone and what it means to not just love them, but take care of them, be the husband, the man, the, the provider, the one who would provide leadership for his family. By the grace of God, I had a couple of guys who invested their lives in me and mentored me and taught me a great deal about what it means to be a godly man. One of the things I learned is that being a godly man is not something that happens automatically. It, it's not just going to happen that way. A man does not just automatically become a godly husband, a loving husband. It's something you develop under the work dependence on the Holy Spirit, but also with some intentional decisions and learning and commitments in order to move your life in that direction. That's why I think it's so great that a church takes time to consider this topic of being a godly man. It's an area where it's so crucial for the church 
to get involved, not just in teaching and preaching it, but men taking the opportunity of finding younger men and discipling them and teaching them, because that is the way it happens, I believe. One aspect in particular that often gets overlooked in the area of being a godly man is how men are involved in the mission of the church. Because this has been an area that has been often left to the young people or the women, and men often have taken a back seat in this area of moving ahead with the mission, of advancing the great commission, of being personally involved in the process of spreading the glory of God throughout the nations. It's an exciting opportunity. It's a tremendous place to see God at work, but it's something that that men need to get involved in. Not just men, but men certainly need to be involved in this. So if there's one thing I can communicate this morning, it would be this, that godly men recognize that the driving force behind the mission of the church is God himself. This is his work that we're involved in. We're not just trying to set up our own plans or carry out our own agenda or advance our own cause or find our own sense of significance and meaning through our work. But instead, we're here to do the work of God. God works through godly men and women to accomplish his purpose. This issue is a tremendous struggle for the church in East Asia as well as people are struggling with their marriages and their homes. I do a lot of pastor training and working with leaders of churches, and in along with the teaching, there is a lot of counseling uh, on how to improve marriage, how to solve problems, how to bring marriage around to a place where God is the center, where he is honored and glorified in what is happening in people's homes. And as pastors come and talk to me and ask us questions about this, they're not asking for other people. Many of them are asking for themselves about their own marriages, recognizing their own struggles that they're facing in their homes. So it's a tremendous area of need. There are a couple of complications that make it difficult for Asian men in particular in developing strong homes. One is the expectation. There just is no expectation for godly leadership. Men are not taught to give it. Women are not taught to accept it. And so there is a struggle that begins. And they have grown up in a culture where they've not been taught the word of God. They've not been taught godly leadership. And it is absolutely the opposite of their training, their culture. So when they come to Christ, they have to completely change and reverse their way of thinking. And it's not something that is easy to do. In fact, it's impossible to do apart from the power of the Holy Spirit and a definite sense of commitment and teaching to see that happen. So one reason that makes it complicated is the expectation. Nobody expects godly leadership in their homes. A second one is this relentless pursuit of success that people are taught to follow. From very young children, people are taught that there is nothing that matters outside of this life. There is nothing beyond this life. So the only thing that is important is to pursue success, to become as successful as possible. And that will include riches and wealth, but that's not all. It's this whole idea of being able to accomplish something, bringing attention to your name, lifting your reputation, honoring your parents, and doing all of this 
in an earthy sense of looking at only this life. This life is what matters. So the idea of investing in your children and teaching them the word of God and how to trust God and how to have confidence in him, those are just absolutely foreign concepts that people have to intentionally learn and be taught. So it represents a tremendous need. As Paul wrote the book of 2 Corinthians, I, I believe his main purpose was to help us see how that the, the truth of Scripture applies to everyday life, how it fits into the struggles that we have in our lives today. In almost every chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul says something about his difficulty, his suffering, the difficult life that he lead, led. And it's not just talking about his problems, but he is using this as an opportunity to apply biblical truth to, to work through his problems, to look at his problems in a godly way. You realize that the book of 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote to this church. And he has been urging the church uh, to deal with problems, and they had a lot of problems. So he's been urging them, he's been teaching them, uh, to deal with sin that was going on in the church and to answer questions and doctrinal problems, division. There were all kinds of things happening in this church. So he has gone through all of that now, and the church has generally responded in a positive way. So now he's writing this letter, his fourth letter, to encourage the church, to help them recognize the value of continuing on, of holding out their hope in Christ, of not being distracted by all the things that were in the world around them. In chapters 4 and 5, Paul is centering on the idea of hope. In chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, he said, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So here he's trying to change our focus and shift it from what's here and now, the problems, the struggles, the temptations we have, and shift instead on what we're looking forward to, recognizing that all of our struggles, our trials and difficulties are, he said, producing for us an eternal weight of glory. God is using every struggle to accomplish something valuable and necessary that we will finally realize in eternity. Not even in this life, but in eternity. And then he went on in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, to talk about the hope that is involved in dying. That when we come to the end of physical life, it's not the end of hope. It is the beginning of hope. It's the beginning of real life. As we set aside our earthly tent, our junker piece of apartment, we set that aside and take on this glorious reality of life in heaven. That's our hope. Now, how can that really be true? How can we have that kind of hope? Well, it depends on our motivation. And so in verses 11 through the end of chapter 5, he is really addressing our motivation. The driving force behind everything we do, verse 11, needs to be the fear of God. It needs to be recognizing who God is and serving him, worshiping him. 
All this happens in our heart, verses 12 and 13. Our motives are shaped in our heart. Our motives do not happen to us. They do not automatically drive us. We choose our motives. And we center our lives on certain choices that we've made as to why we're doing what we're doing. So if I am going along and I suddenly wake up and realize I'm doing this for the wrong reason, the answer isn't to stop doing it. The answer is to change my reason, to change my motives, which I can do under the power of the Holy Spirit. In verse 14, he says that everything we need needs to be driven by the love of Christ. And verses 15 and 16, that this is our center for reason, for living. Christ gave himself for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, for our own purpose, our own desire, but instead we would invest our lives in that which glorifies him. Then he said in verse 17, in Christ, we are a new creation. Everything is new. We're not the same. Our goals are not the same. Our priorities are no longer the same. The goal of all of this is complete transformation. And today in Christ, right now today, we are already new creatures, new creations in Christ. And then from there, he goes on to talk about what I want to focus on this morning. And I just want to stress two facts that we see in verses 18 through 21. The first one is this, that the driving force behind reconciliation is God himself. This is God's design. It's not man's idea. It's God's design. In verse 18, we find that God has determined to reconcile us. This was according to his will. This was his desire. He said in verse 18, now all these things are from God. What things was he talking about? Well, I think he's going back to what he just said in verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. This new creation, being driven by the love of Christ, Christ giving himself for us so that we will live for him, all of this is from God himself. Our new creation is from God. The process of reconciliation began way back in the Garden of Eden. Actually, it began before the foundation of the earth when God chose us in him. But the first time we see God going through the process of reconciliation was in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, God came, remember, he came into the garden and he called to the man and he said to him, where are you? And he said that not because he didn't know where Adam was. He said it because he was establishing this pattern of seeking those who were lost, seeking those who were hiding from him. Many years later, God said to Ezekiel in chapter 34, verse 16, I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. And that has been the process of God reconciling the world to himself from the beginning. Many, many years later, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So God has been in the process of reconciling the world since the beginning of sin itself. It has been his work. Now, in the passage we're looking at here, in these four short little verses, 18 through 21, Paul uses the word reconcile five times in these four short little verses. The word reconcile is a word that is only used 
uh, by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. No other writer uses that word. And he uses this word to describe the relationship between God and man. That's the only way Paul uses the word reconcile, is to talk about the relationship between God and man. The word reconcile means to, to change or to exchange. Sometimes in English, we'll say a husband and wife who have been apart may reconcile. They may come back together. Or maybe a parent and a child may reconcile their relationship. Or maybe two races that have been divided may reconcile together. We use that word in that way, and it means that both parties make some changes, make some commitments, and they come back together, and they reconcile. They come back together in their relationship. But in the New Testament, the word reconcile is never used that way. It is only used of the relationship between God and man. And God is never reconciled. He is always the one who does the reconciling. And it's always man who is reconciled to God. God has no changes to make. There's nothing he needs to, to change at all. So he is always there, unchanging, just, perfect, righteous, gracious, compassionate, loving, merciful, and in that way reaches down to man and reconciles us to himself. It's always changed in that direction. It's God's work, and he is determined to reconcile us. Beyond that, he reconciles us through forgiveness. We're going to come back to the end of verse 18 in a minute, but for now, skip down to the first part of verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Reconciling the world to himself. He did it through Christ, and he did it through forgiveness. And I just want to say quickly that Paul was not teaching universal salvation when he said that the world is being reconciled to him. The world does not mean every individual in the world. It means the general population. And we know that there is enough scripture that teaches that God has done everything. His death on the cross was sufficient to cover sin completely. But he does not save us apart from an interaction or a response from us of repentance and faith, trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. But he's saying here that this is his work. He does it through Christ. Now, remember the starting point. We were enemies of God. He was not our enemy. We were his enemy. We were against him. And God is perfectly just. He hates sin. And he's perfect. He's holy. And he's looking at us who are enemies of him who are lost in sin, who have no ability at all to satisfy the justice of God in any way. So here we were standing with this sword of judgment hanging over us, and we absolutely deserved it, and there was nothing we could do to, to sway that in any way or take care of the justice of God. We cannot satisfy his justice. But God has done everything. And in his justice and in his grace has borne the price for sin himself, taken the judgment, the sword of judgment on himself so that we could go free. And he says there, he does this through Christ. Christ was the only one that could satisfy the justice of God. And he did it through forgiveness so that sin will never be charged to our account. Once we come into Christ through faith in Christ alone, sin will never be charged to our account, but instead the righteousness of Christ is given to our account. We're made righteous in Christ. God has reconciled us through 
forgiveness, and he's gone beyond that, and he has made reconciliation the mission of the church. He said it twice in these verses. In verse 18, he said that he has given us the ministry of reconciliation, and then verse 19, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This is the business of the church. Last March, I was um, in a mountainous region in East Asia and doing some pastor training in this area in an old boarding school that was, uh, the buildings were about 50 years old. And most buildings in this area are built to last about 25 years old. And uh, this building had not lasted very well. It, holes in the roof, it was, it was a pretty rustic area. And this old boarding school, it hadn't been used for years. And now we're moving back in to establish this pastor training class. It was pretty rustic. You know, there was no heat in the buildings. Uh, the, the beds were plywood bunk beds. There was no plumbing, just an outhouse. Uh, it was pretty rustic. And beyond that, the worst thing of all, no internet. Yeah, I was outraged when I found that out. So we're in this place, and uh, it was in the mountains, and March is still pretty cold over there, so I was freezing cold. I was going to be there for a week, and freezing cold. Do you ever get so cold that you just start shivering and you can't stop? That's what it was like, and I found out after a while that if I drank some hot water or coffee, it, it might help, but then you start wishing for more plumbing, so that's not always the best solution either. <laughs> So I'm sitting there for a week and thinking, I don't know if I can do this. Maybe the police will come so I can get out of here, you know, go back to my comfortable room where there's heat. It was bad. Uh, at the same time, we have two pastor training programs. We have this group for the older established pastors, and then we're just starting up some what we call mini Bible schools for younger students that are about 16 to 25 years old. It's more just general Bible training. And in the same boarding school, uh, one of our pastors was starting a mini Bible school for about 20, 16 to 25-year-old kids. And I was there for their beginning service, too. And they were all together, and they began sharing their testimonies about what God was doing in their lives. And many of these 16-, 17-, 18-year-old kids would just break down and cry as they started talking about the privilege of being able to come and study the Bible and being taught the Word of God. They're going to be there for a year and a half in the same place I was. Not sure I wanted to stay for a week. They're, they're going to be there for a year and a half and just thrilled uh, with the opportunity to be there to study the Bible. About halfway through our week of training, uh, the police did come. They uh, came to inspect our place somehow. This was in a little village, but some people had heard our Bible school students singing, and uh, the police came to find out what was going on. And we had enough warning that they were able to kind of shuffle me into some little closet, which they locked from the outside. And I uh, kind of was standing there for about an hour or so while the police inspected the place, trying to find out what was going on. And I was in there, and as I was looking around, I began to realize it wasn't a closet that I was in. It was an apartment of the Bible teacher and his family. He had his wife and his two little kids and him living in this little closet. And they were there permanently. I, I had talked with this guy. He came, he moved there to teach the Bible to these young people. And I was very impressed with him. But he was telling me that they had 12 chickens. That's what they owned before they came to this place, 12 chickens. They were hoping to start a chicken farm. So they gave the chickens to this boarding school, and now they had nothing but thrilled to be able to be there to teach the Bible. All those things 
didn't matter to them. The, the conveniences. Here I'm sitting there wondering if I can last for a week. And these guys are here for a year and a half, the teacher there permanently, giving his life because he wanted to teach the Bible. He saw himself as part of the mission of the church. He was a man that was dedicated to giving everything, to being able to serve God. He saw the mission of the church, and that's the passion that we need to catch. We are so easily distracted by so many other pursuits. Uh, In the church as well, it's so hard for us to keep our focus on serving God and having him be the center of our motivation and why we do what we do. But it's God's work. The second thing I want to mention this morning in verse 20 is that godly men invest their energy in reconciliation. We invest our energy in the mission of the church. Paul said in verse 20, we are ambassadors. He said, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making his appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because it's so easy to fall into extremes, we've got to be careful to maintain the balance. And Paul does exactly that. In verses 18 and 19, he's giving God's side. He has done everything to reconcile us and continues to do everything through that process. But he does not do it apart from us. He does not do it for us. He does not save us apart from a response of faith and repentance on our part. There must be a trusting Christ permanently and completely alone for our salvation. And in the same way, he is spreading his glory throughout the earth. He is getting the message out there, but he is doing it through you and me. He's not doing it apart from us. He's not saying, okay, you can sit here and I'll just do my work without you. He is using us and working through us to accomplish his purpose. He said we're ambassadors of Christ. The word ambassador literally means old man. But don't let that scare you. Most ambassadors were older, more experienced guys. They lived in a foreign land, just like we are in a foreign place in this world. And we are representatives, we are spokesmen for Jesus Christ. This last May, when I was in East Asia, I met a couple. uh, Their name is Zhao and Zhang. Zhao is the guy, Zhang is the woman. They've been married now for three months. Uh, Zhao is from the Wa minority group uh, who are scattered through Thailand and Burma and South China. And his vision, they sat down and shared this with me while I was there. Their vision is finish their training. Uh, She wants to learn the dialect and then they want to go into their hometown and start a church. They'll start a restaurant. Uh, His brother is a cook. So they'll start a restaurant and they'll use this as an opportunity just to begin reaching people. And they want to see a church planted. And then from there, they want to send people out into the regions outside of their country in other regions around there with the gospel of Christ. This is a guy who sees himself as an ambassador. And he's given his life for this. This is what drives him. This is what he's anxious to get involved in. Godly men recognize we're ambassadors. They recognize the urgency of reconciliation. Paul said in verse 20, we beg you, we beg you to be reconciled to God. There's urgency in that. The word means to admonish. It's more than just asking. You don't beg somebody to be reconciled and then sit back and say, oh, well, I guess I did my part. 
but there's a sense of urgency about it. There's a sense of dedicating my life to be part of this process, trusting that God is going to use my efforts to accomplish his purpose in this person's life. That is our driving force. It's not so that we will feel successful. It's not so that we will uh, meet needs. It's not so that we will have this sense of significance about us. Our driving force is not even the people we're trying to reach. But the driving force is the glory of God. We do this because we want to please him. And our concern is obeying him. Not necessarily accomplishing results, but obeying him and doing what he has called us to do. Godly men recognize the urgency of reconciliation. And we also recognize the foundation, which we find in verse 21. And I think this is really the kind of the summary statement of what he's trying to get across in this chapter. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. About five or six years ago, John Piper wrote a short little book, which I think was difficult for him to do. Uh, it was called The Passion of Jesus Christ. And in this book, there are 50 reasons why Jesus had to suffer. In the beginning of this book, he said the most important question of the 21st century is, why did Jesus Christ suffer so much? He went on to say, we will never see this if we fail to go beyond the human cause. So he recognized that this is all centered in God himself. It was not, Christ was not a victim. He was not suffering at the hands of men. This was all part of God's intentional plan to take care of sin. We read in Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, the extreme suffering of Christ. John Piper said the first reason that Jesus had to suffer like he did was so that he could absorb the wrath of God over sin. He was literally bearing his own wrath over sin, taking the punishment for it. As you read through Isaiah 52 and 53, you read words about Christ that he was smitten, he was stricken, he, his, his appearance was marred more than any person. Isaiah talks about people hiding their faces from Christ in fear of what he looked like because of his suffering. And then as you go on and you read those chapters, you read that God was satisfied. He'll see the suffering of his servant and be satisfied. It pleased God to bruise him. Why? Why did it please God? Why was he satisfied with this extreme suffering of Christ? What was he accomplishing? Well, one reason was to absorb the wrath of God. And the wrath of God over sin was, has been already absorbed in the suffering of Christ. In this process of being made sin for us. So that we could be made the righteousness of God. So when we read the description of Christ and his suffering, when we see the pictures of his extreme suffering, we're getting just a small little picture of how God feels about sin. We get to see a graphic reminder of the wrath of God, his, uh, his view of sin, what sin does to him. But God in his grace was so determined to save us, to reconcile us, that he willingly bore that wrath. He willingly took those consequences of sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Because he has done that for us, we are part of the process of reconciling the world to himself as ambassadors of Christ. 
Godly men recognize that. And this is something worth investing our lives in. The cause of reconciliation is a worthwhile mission for the church. I want to encourage you this morning, instead of complaining about our culture, complaining about our government, forwarding emails about our president or about this corporation or that corporation, instead of consuming our time with those kinds of things, let's get personally involved in the reconciliation of the world. Let's get personally involved in the mission of the church. And let's invest our time in that, in those things which will actually be part of the process of spreading the glory of God and seeing people changed in their relationship and made new creations, made righteous in Christ. The church is still the tool that God is using to reach the world. And the church is not a victim of our culture. The church is not just helplessly waiting for things to happen. Instead, the church is a powerful tool in the hands of an all-powerful God who is calmly accomplishing his purpose. And he's still working through us as we walk in obedience to him. Let's pray. Father, today we're thankful for what you're doing in the world. We're thankful for the many examples we have, both in Scripture and in present-day life, of those who have honestly given their lives to serve you, to be part of reconciliation. Lord, I pray that you challenge each of us. You've called each of us to be in some way involved in the mission of the church. You've already called us. So help us to fulfill that calling, to make that calling the center of our ambition in our life. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.